This is Means of Creation. This is our weekly show where we are doing a deep dive into the passion economy and the creator ecosystem and the future of work. I'm Lee, along with my co-host, Nathan. Today, we're chatting with Joshua Cohen. Josh is the co-founder and COO of TubeFilter, which is a digital media company founded in 2009 that focuses on creator economy news and insights. They break a ton of news that we then cover in our means of creation newsletter. He also co-founded the Streamy Awards, which is this annual awards event that celebrates the best in online video and is considered basically like the Grammys for online video creators. And both TubeFilter and the Streamy Awards have been pivotal for the legitimization of the creator economy and the Streamy Awards have been recognizing video creators long before it was considered a serious industry by the wider public. And Josh also hosts Planet Upload, which is a podcast dissecting the creator economy. So he has a lot of different projects going on, and we're so excited to have him on the show here today. So thank you so much, Josh, for being here. Thank you for that intro, Lee. You need to. I need to take you around for all my other speaking gigs, too. <laughs> <laughs> Leah's the best type woman. I, I can testify to that too. <laughs> Happy to be your your official introduce introducing person. <laughs> but anyways, so in our conversation today, we're we're really excited to chat with Josh about how content creation became viewed as a legitimate business. We'll also talk about creator wellness and burnout, any advice that he has for aspiring content creators. We'll talk about social media platforms, Snap, TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, and more. And so we'll just dive in here right now. And I'd love to kick it off with just a high-level reflection over the past 12 years. Josh, you've been in the creator ecosystem for over a decade now. What have been the biggest changes that you've seen during that time or what has remained constant over that time? I think the biggest changes, and you nailed it in the intro you gave me too, was the legitimization of this space. The fact that we're even having this conversation right now is still wild to me and blows my mind. We started covering the online video and creator ecosystem back in 2007, 2008 or so, writing about it then, doing 2,000 word profiles on iJustine when she was a blip in the technology section of major newspapers saying, look at this crazy person on the internet doing, looking through her iPhone bill from AT&T. We were like giving these people, like looking at them with a critical lens and shining a light on them in the way that other publications in the traditional media entertainment landscape do for television stars and film stars. And so we were like expecting this moment in time to come. It's taken a little bit longer than we expected, but we're definitely like here and it's here in a bigger way than I think I ever really thought possible too. But so I think that's what's really changed. And when we first started covering the industry, it was individuals who were doing all of this content creation in their free time. There was lots of talk about the democratized tools of production back then, where in the early 2000s, you could only edit on an avid suite basically for tens of thousands of dollars. And then all of a sudden you could edit on your computer with Final Cut or iMovie or whatever else. And you also had these prosumer cameras that were coming out that were of a really high quality that enabled people with just a little bit of disposable income to create kind of the stuff that they always wanted to create. And then you had the advent of the internet, YouTube, other early places like iFilm and these other distribution outlets where people could really now get their creative work in front of a much larger audience than I think they ever could have imagined before. And so we were really like interested in that ecosystem and the people doing this. We predicted that there would be this kind of like 
other Hollywood class or there's this other class of creators that would exist outside of the Hollywood ecosystem. Because if you think of, there's only so many motion pictures that a television studio can create within a year. There's only so many hours a day of television programming, or at least there was back then. And people were making it. There's probably a ton of people that should be in this Hollywood ecosystem that aren't because of whatever, because of they weren't, they didn't know the right people. They didn't look the right way. They weren't the right sexual oh. orientation. They didn't have the right color skin or whatever else. And now they have resources at their disposal where they can really create their own trajectory. And I think that stayed the same. That's even accelerated throughout the past 12 mm -hmm. years where you have these people that wouldn't necessarily have the means to get into these rooms or these closed spaces a decade ago that are now being coveted and being sought after, being like asked to come into these rooms and these closed spaces and be a part of the greater Hollywood ecosystem and brand deals and whatever else that wasn't really that wasn't really even a thought of someone being capable of doing, especially in this condensed time frame that we're seeing now, like 10 years yeah, ago. Absolutely. There's been like a huge democratization of the ability to become a creator in the first place that harkens to the name of the show means of creation. And it used to be that people were selected for entertainment roles and acting gigs by various gatekeepers. And now it's become much more grassroots based and consumers really deciding for themselves who they choose to consume content from and who they want to become famous and who they'd like to hear from. That's just led to the proliferation of such a diverse array of creators than who had existed before. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on what led to the legitimization of the creator ecosystem as an area that's actually ripe for business creation and for investment. Yeah. So I think there were some definitive inflection points and I'll try to be brief and only take you through a few of them. One, I think an early one was Felicia Day. Felicia Day was a poster child of the early like web series movement and mm. also perhaps its real only success story. For those of you that don't know, Felicia Day worked on a bunch of different Joss Whedon projects, but always played these periphery characters. She then started this web series called The Guild back in the late 2000s that was about a group of Dungeons and Dragons players and about them playing D and about, but also their life around that. It was this kind of like comedy series that related to that. This was the type of thing where back then in 2008, 2009, 2010, never would have been on television. It was too nerdy, too niche, too just esoteric to really command a mainstream audience. So she went online and she produced her series there. And then she got picked up, was acquired by she got a deal with MSN when MSN video was really into the online video space. They acquired her show and distributed it. And then she started Geek and Sundry, which was then acquired by Lionsgate. So she was really this like early success story of what could be possible when you have someone that was like on the periphery of Hollywood, but really shut out of, of being in Hollywood. She told herself she was always trying to be like this square peg fitting into the round hole of the ecosystem that previously existed. And she really valued the opportunity that the internet gave her and that her fans gave her to create this thing and really build a life because of it. So I think that was one yeah. inflection point, seeing the possibility with her. Then I really think YouTube's $100 million, 100 channels initiative back in 2011, 2012, around there, when YouTube said, well, hey, we're gonna start the 100 channels, we're gonna give these channels in aggregate $100 million. 
you could argue that a lot of that was like not well spent. It was YouTube's first foray into giving channels a lot of dough to try to get more content creation on the platform. And they gave it to big name Hollywood stars. A lot of it. Interesting. Like Tony Hawk had a big series. Uh, had a big channel. There were other big traditional entertainment companies that got these checks that because the YouTube thought that, hey, they're making great stuff on their other platforms. They can make great stuff for YouTube. What happened was none of those channels worked out. One of the only success stories was actually probably SourceFed, which was Phil DeFranco's second channel, which I think worked out because it wasn't from a big Hollywood person. It was from someone that understood YouTube. But then several years later, SourceFed had to shut down too. But in any case, what it really did was it changed the conversation around YouTube and around these creators. It gave Hollywood the impression that, oh, there's money in this platform and this platform's serious about cultivating really good content. And they're putting a check behind that talk. Then I think, honestly, I'll just go through two or three more, was YouTube's Beacon program. And that was when they first started promoting their homegrown, born and bred YouTube creators to massive audiences. So I think that was like 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. But they had Michelle Fawn and a couple others who I can't recall right now, but they had them on billboards. They had them on television ads during the Oscars, during the Grammys, during the Golden Globes. They had them on in inserts on in major magazine publications and billboards across the country and major metropolitan areas. And then that also, I think, really changed the conversation is that people then started to have a basic understanding of some YouTube stars and the gravitas and the and the communities and the fans that these people could command. They started going on morning shows as part of this Beacon program and everything else. And they were just the, the first, there were initial three in the Beacon program. And then YouTube continued that throughout. That was when Susan Wojcicki first became CEO. That was one of her first initiatives there. And then honestly, what I think really helped in this last phase of it was Logan Paul's Suicide Forest video. I mm -hmm. think that his, there were lots of problems with that video. Obviously he had a lot of backlash from it. It was like terribly well thought, like a, a terrible decision. Lots of poor decisions led into that process, but it got so much traction. It was a number one on YouTube trending, obviously problematic because of that. But then all these major media publications started picking up on it because, hey, you have the number one trending video in the world on the number one video sharing site in the world showing this very problematic video from a creator who seemingly has a history of being at least semi-problematic in the past. And so people started writing about this. And then when they started writing about this, they were getting a lot of traffic from it. Yeah. having never covered creators or anything before. I think in the process of writing about this, they realized how massive Logan Paul was and how creators like him were. And so what it did was it helped journalists at major media publications develop a vocabulary around these creators and an understanding around these creators. And so then, and they also generate a lot of traffic too. So then when hopefully... 
less problematic stuff happen, less atrocious stuff happen with creators in the future, they were able to cover it with that like baseline of understanding of, oh, this is something one worth covering. And two, I know how to write about it now. And I think that was another big inflection point for getting more people to start thinking about looking at and um, really paying attention to this creator ecosystem. It's so interesting how as all these different events unfold, each one kind of paves the way for the next event to take less like activation energy to unfold. And because it's like more people are aware of it as a concept. And if more people are aware of it as a concept, maybe some of them will be fans or they'll just be in the market for news about that if it's like a crazy piece of news. And, and it's a real interesting kind of really a kind of a network effect that like snowballs over time where it accumulates, but it takes a really long time is the fascinating thing is it's like, how long has it been obvious that there's compelling original content being created on the internet, original video content for a very long time. But like, it also took a really long time back in the day with movies. Like the movie industry itself was like started out as you'd have a video of do- someone doing a backflip or sneezing. And that was crazy. Cause just like video was new. It was like a VR demo or something like that of the 1910s. And then it took decades for it to morph into anything close to a feature film or like an industry with all the stuff we have now. And so it's really cool to see our own version of that that we're currently living through and to also then project it out into the future and say, okay, like what will happen when this is 100x more whatever legitimized or something, which is different from 100x more scale. It just means like there's more kind of like tracks built in society to facilitate the thing moving. Totally. And I think also part of that is just a generational shift. And yeah where people and people who were assistants 12 years ago are in now decision-making roles at major companies now and are able to, they've grown up with these creators. They've perhaps watched these creators when they were younger and still now, and it's part of their like entertainment diet. And so now they're able to, they're in decision-making roles at VC firms, at media publications, at studios, at wherever, at brands. And they're able to take what they know and say, hey, these creators really can do some amazing stuff. Let's work with them. Let's work with them in the greater capacity. I also think it's just the normal trajectory of adoption of YouTube, of more like handheld viewing devices, of iPads, of whatever else. There's There's just more people consuming content on these platforms now than ever before. So the stars on these platforms have the capability to be bigger now than they ever were before. Like the biggest star today is always going to be bigger than the biggest star three years ago, just because there's way more people watching them now. A hundred percent. Yeah. And as you were giving that amazing overview of the creator economy and its evolution over the past decade, I'm reminded of the fact that I think the term creator actually originated from YouTube. I think YouTube was the first platform that started calling its talent creators. I was looking into kind of like the history and the etymology of like, when did we start calling these folks creators? And I think it really happened with that shift from like focusing on traditional celebrities and just putting them on this new format and this new platform and trying to port them over to actually focusing on the homegrown talent who were completely native to that platform and creating content for it natively that that didn't used to be famous before. So that's also really interesting. And I also wanted to chat with you about platforms and platform strategy today, especially as it pertains to creators. So one of the biggest changes I think has been platforms are now thinking about their creator strategy very early on, way earlier than they used to. We just saw the news of, I think the Taylor wrote a piece about 
Snapchat spotlight and how it's mm. making all of these teenagers millionaires overnight. Um, By the way, interesting to compare Snapchat's funding strategy with what we were talking about YouTube did earlier, where YouTube funded a lot of like big media companies and Snapchat's giving million dollars to like kids who created awesome Snapchat. Yeah. And then there was also recently the news of Clubhouse's creator pilot program with a small group of Clubhouse influencers who are going to be given access to special tools for power users. But yeah, I, I just love to hear like your thoughts, reactions around all the different platform strategies as it pertains to creators and who do you think is making the right moves and who's going to be successful? Yeah, I think one, it's just like starting to become table stakes now where if you want to be a legitimate platform, you have to take care of the creators that are bringing legitimacy to your platform. And I think it's just, it was very apparent to people in the industry and in this ecosystem who are covering it, who are participating in it, that like, it was like, why are these people not embracing their stars? I remember being at meetings with Snapchat three years ago or Instagram three years ago, and it being like an afterthought. Yes, they might have creator teams. Yes, they might put some time, energy, and effort into facilitating a relationship with their creators, but it wasn't a priority. And now I really think it has to be a priority if you want to maintain and gain any type of traction within this space. I also think YouTube really doesn't give enough credit maybe because it's just been around for so long and been doing this for so long, but there's a lot of hype and excitement around Snapchat giving away a million dollars a day since late November to creators. Like there should be. Taylor's article was awesome in the, in the New York Times about that. But like YouTube, so you take that a million dollars a day, that's $365 million a year. Mm-hmm. YouTube last year, if you, because Google finally split out its earnings reports or the ad revenue that YouTube generates from its overall earnings reports. Yeah. So, and so if you do if you put the like general revenue splits, you can do some back of the napkin math where in one year YouTube's paying out like four, five, six billion dollars to creators yeah. on the platform. Yes, that includes music labels. Yes, that includes traditional entertainment channels on YouTube, but that also includes a ton of creators. And so I think like YouTube's just been doing this for so long and they've had, like you said, they were one of the first people to coin and really embrace the term creator that actually came over via their acquisition from Next New Networks. Next New Networks was this like proto YouTube network where one of their items of like intrigue and their secret sauce to bring creators onto the network was this creator playbook. YouTube acquired them because Nexty Networks was better at YouTube strategy than YouTube was. And that was like the team was Vanessa Pappas and Tim Shea and others in that Nexty Networks. Vanessa Pappas is now the interim CEO of TikTok. And they've been really into creators and had this creator team since the early 2010s, really. And then paying creators all along the way too. So now all these other entities are just finally starting to catch up. And they have the benefit of like, TikTok has the benefit of this being a priority from like day one, basically, or at least year two or three in the past like year, 18 months, two years, it's really been a priority for them. Snapchat has suddenly just turned it around and really kicked it into high gear. I think like Instagram and Facebook are losing a little bit of like edge on this while these other entities are really, well, these other platforms are really making moves here. Totally. 
I have a theory about this. I'm curious. Oh, go ahead, Lee. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I agree with that last comment, and I wouldn't be surprised if Facebook or Instagram tried to play catch up in regards to coming out with some sort of splashy program to pay out creators, because it is becoming table stakes, as you said. And not only is it becoming table stakes to retain creators and to make them feel like they're investing their time into something that is actually paying them, but it's also table stakes from a like marketing and psychological perspective for creators to be involved in a platform that actually it feels like they're valued by the platform. I think the TikTok creator fund is an example where the actual, the marketing value from talking about the creator fund and like the hype around the creator fund actually exceeds what they're actually paying out. Like most creators are earning pennies per as their CPM and it's nowhere near what they could probably get on YouTube, but just the marketing value and the PR value that they've gotten from emphasizing that they care about creators is so great. Totally. And actually like we interviewed Facebook or some creators who are on Facebook video that are actually making seven figures a year on Facebook video. No one really knows about it. Um, It's like, it's like, I want to say it's a secret, but it's something that creators are starting to hear about and gravitate towards too. And people, there's even companies now, entities like Jelly Smack are basically porting over creators' libraries from YouTube or some someplace else over the Facebook, re-editing them, re-contextualizing them with different titles, metadata, et cetera, in order for to take advantage of now the like CPMs that Facebook video is offering. But they're not promoting that at all. And I think their relationship with creators, it hasn't been seen like, like you talking about from a, just a psychological standpoint. And is this platform taking care of me standpoint? There hasn't been the same like forthright, very PR splashy effort to be like, Hey, creators, we really dig you. You're part of us. You're part of the family here. We want to take care of you and let us know what we can do. hundred percent. Yeah. And what do you think about that strategy of just paying out higher CPMs or making this splashy announcement that they're going to be paying creators a million dollars a day? Like, my perception is that a lot of the creators who are gravitating towards those programs and posting on those platforms as a result are actually just native TikTok creators or they're native to another platform, but they're just cross posting their content elsewhere to yeah, get for some cash. Paid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that actually going to benefit? the platform in the long term if those creators are still viewed as TikTok creators but they're cross posting on Spotlight or Reels like how do these platforms actually transition these payments into a sustainable strategy of creating their own homegrown talent yeah i think part of it is do they care <laughs> can snapchat pay a million dollars a day indefinitely to creators in order to get, even if it's like cross-posting or whatever, if it's getting more views on the platform and getting more people to go to the platform, does it matter if they're just cross-posting TikTok stuff, if they're cross-posting stuff from Facebook or whatever else? If more people are using the platform, more people are using the platform, maybe they'll never be a platform that has like homegrown stars that really come out of Snapchat and are like, all for Snapchat or whatever, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they're okay with that arbitrage of paying out a million dollars a day to creators to get more than a million dollars worth of eyeballs a day. Same thing with Facebook. I don't know if Facebook, like Facebook 
if we go to any PR Facebook event, they're very proud of their homegrown like Facebook video stars and the ones that seem to do better on that platform than on other platforms. And there are several of those now too, but I, I don't know if it like matters to them if, mm-hmm. if PewDiePie, he's a YouTuber, he's always going to be a YouTuber. PewDiePie just signed a deal with Jelly Smack to port his content over the Facebook and I don't know if they care if PewDiePie ever goes to Facebook, honestly, mm-hmm. if like he ever interacts with an audience member there, if his videos are getting views over there, that might be good enough for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's definitely something to that of there may be just like an arbitrage opportunity and you can just have some other platform really have the center of like creative gravity, but then you can just monetize off of the fact that people have developed those skills and fans and whatever. And But I don't know if you do the math, I would be very interested to spreadsheet this out, but it seems like it would be very difficult to justify what they're doing as like an arbitrage opportunity where they get more, like they spend a million dollars a day and they get more than a million dollars worth of views a day. I would guess that they don't get more than a million dollars of views a day and it, it will be very hard for them to. And they're trying to bootstrap some sort of like flywheel to get it going. And they're doing like, they're pushing, it's very heavy, it's unprofitable at the beginning, but then hopefully it like just starts spinning. And I think in order for it to really start spinning, there has to be some sort of organic community there where people like, there's like a particular style that you get from it that you don't get somewhere else. And so if you want to create for that and you want to consume for that, then that's where you go. You Ethan, know? you're breaking up a little bit for me. I oh, don't no. know how you are for, uh, <laughs> apparently I'm breaking up for everyone. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know if it's just me or no, I think it's, I think it's other people keep going. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah. You sound better now at the end of it for sure. Yeah. You sound better now that you've, you're done talking. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. <laughs> I was basically just saying, I don't think they'll get a million dollars a day in views back from the million dollars a day they spend in content creation. And so I think it's like they're trying to get a flywheel started unprofitably at first. And I think the goal of that, once it really gets moving, is for there to be like an organic community where there's a type of thing that if you want to create that, you go there. because that's what, And if you want to consume that, you go there. And they're like trying to create a market almost. I think that's the thing. Oh no, am I gone? Wait, is Nathan still there? I think he got booted off. I think it's just you yeah. right now, Josh. It sounded great. Like I totally get where he's coming from too. That's the ideal, right? The ideal is that these platforms spend a ton of dough bringing these creators on. And then that starts to spur some type of native organic ecosystem yeah. where Snapchat's minting its own stars now. And those stars are coming out of their incentive to partake in getting their share of a million dollars a day from the platform. Yeah. Yeah, I think the incentives are really designed as a way to kick off the flywheel, as you said, and the hope and the aspiration I have to believe is that it's going to perpetuate itself at some point without the um, explicit input of the platform. But I also want to switch gears a little bit and chat about the, the creator side of the equation and talk about the individual creators themselves. A topic that has been getting a lot more attention recently is the topic of creator wellness and creator burnout. Hunter Walk recently wrote some really interesting ideas about how we can mitigate creator burnout. I think some of the proposals that he had was like seasons where there's like a rest and recovery time built into the schedule and you're you're on for a season and then you take some time off. He also proposed the idea of like PTO where creators get 
paid time off from the platform once they reach a certain threshold of success. And I think he also had this idea where the platforms themselves rate limited creators so that they didn't feel like they needed to constantly churn out content. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts, Josh, on creator burnout and how creators can maintain a successful career and a career that has some sort of stability and longevity without burning out. Yeah. So I think that part of this creator burnout conversation stems from the fact like it was a byproduct of YouTube's algorithm. So YouTube early on really benefited people that were posting and getting lots of views every single day. If you remember the Jake Paul song, Everyday Bro, like Casey Neistat was one of the, like Everyday Grace Helbig was one of the first. She was posting Monday through Friday. She had a video every day. Then Casey Neistat was one of the other most notable ones to start posting every day for like over a year, maybe even a year and a half, posting a new vlog every single weekday. Then Logan Paul and Jake Paul really took that to another extreme. We're posting almost every single day. PewDiePie was posting almost every single day throughout this whole time too. And that seemed to be the only way to gain this like really high notoriety on YouTube, get a ton of views, ton of subscribers, ton of brand deals and all the money and also fame and notoriety that comes along with all that. There was this idea you really had to go for it and you really had to be exhaustive and post every single day. Yeah, every week, now, bro, doesn't have the same ring. <laughs> definitely not. And like bi-weekly, bro, doesn't. And monthly, bro, <laughs> yeah. doesn't at all. Fortnightly, bro. But, <laughs> but now YouTube has, and, and if you talk to people on the product team over there or other people on the PR team, or really anyone at YouTube, they will try to beat it into you that it really doesn't matter anymore. What that, yes, perhaps that used to matter, maybe, but now what really matters is the quality of your programming. And at what level are you able to maintain that quality of programming? So if you can maintain that quality of programming every day and it's, you can have a good work-life balance with that, go for it. But if you're only uploading once every other week or once a month, and you can still maintain that level of quality, then that's okay too. The algorithm isn't going to punish you for it. And what they mean by that level of quality is that <clears throat> how many of your subscribers are watching the video? And it's basically your watch time and also like how many of your repeat subscribers, how many of your subscribers are coming back to watch more of your programming? There's obviously another like thousands of factors that are involved in the algorithm, but it's like, how much does your subscribers like your latest video? And so then what happens is when people burn out, they start to produce content that isn't as good, that they don't like as much that is too frequent for their subscribers to keep up with. So then they start to see this decline. Then they start freaking out. So they want to produce more. And then they start to see yeah. even a sharper decline. And then it's this negative cycle, negative feedback loop. And But really, there are now hundreds, maybe thousands of YouTube channels that post on a bi-weekly weekly, even monthly level that are making five, six, seven figures a year from their YouTube ad revenue and associated brand deals. Standard TV, you can check them out at standard.tv. They're a great kind of like half talent management company, half network. They have lots of science and like 
thoughtful programming. This kind of like thoughtful, it's not lifestyle programming at all. It's like really thoughtful content. And that type of content takes time to produce. So they have creators that are making videos every two weeks, once a month. And those creators, this is what they do for a living. So I think that the, so that's one side of it is that this idea that people need to be producing all the time isn't necessarily true anymore. And then the other side of it too, is that I think, I think everyone in every industry burns out. And I think what we can look at, at these YouTubers that are burning out is it's not a problem of the platforms themselves or this creator ecosystem itself. It's just that these people are in a position where they are more forthright and more transparent with their audience. So they're being honest about their situation and they have a pulpit from which to preach about their situation too. So everyone gets burnt out. I think YouTube creators and online video creators are just the only people talking about it constantly where other people will listen. So I get that there needs to be some kind of solution for creator burnout, but I think it's in the context of there needs to be some kind of solution for everyone's burnout. And if YouTubers can be like, can be leading the charge on that, then that's great. But I don't think it's a, it's an issue only for this kind of like class of creator class of people. I love that point. And I agree with it wholeheartedly. I think of creators as basically a subsegment of entrepreneurs in general. They're folks who don't have a manager, don't have a boss. They don't have a steady paycheck. They are completely in control of their own destiny. And that comes with both upsides of owning, you know, the entire upside of the business, as well as the downsides of the stress and anxiety that comes from being completely in control of your own destiny. And so I think, I think burnout and this kind of anxiety issue is pervasive among entrepreneurs, founders of all types, and creators are not exempt from that. I think they're just, as you said, they're they're by nature, by definition, they're displaying themselves in front of people and they're vulnerable and they're sharing their lives. And so we hear about it a lot more. Yeah, totally, exactly. Awesome. 